Hello there and welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm Sarah from Sarah Ferruya Coaching and this is the Legends Podcast. I believe there are many, many ways to lead a life and everybody has stories and I want to tell them and share them. These legends are a collection of people who I have found during my 20 years in Tokyo and before. All of them are brilliant people. And when I became bored with reading another billionaire's biography, I thought I want to tell the stories of the people who I meet who are absolutely fascinating, but you won't see on your regular podcast interview. They have overcome obstacles, both systemic and internal, and we cover all kinds of things from creativity, grief, racism, business, disaster, loss, trolling, infertility, farming, eating disorder, eco-feminism, and more. We have elite athletes, people who live on Zen temples in remote parts of Japan, BBC newscaster to Taekwondo champion. Please enjoy these amazing stories from what they've overcome, from what they've built, from what they've created, from the way that they talk. I'm just delighted thinking about it. So please get stuck in and enjoy this next legend. Hello, everybody, and welcome, welcome, welcome to this season five of the Legends podcast with me, Sarah Ferruya from Sarah Ferruya Coaching. And I believe there are many ways to lead a life and everybody has stories and I want to tell them. And with this podcast, I am amassing an archive of incredible stories from people showing a kind of snapshot in time and how, how life, the ebbs and flows of life can go. It's a brilliant companion piece to coaching. And today I'm so delighted to welcome Laura Cooper. Hi, Laura. Hello. <laughs> Laura and I met in Japan some years ago and we have our own story that we can tell later um, but before we get into that Laura I want to ask the first question that I ask all my guests and that is tell me a story that's had an impact an influence or is just of interest I think the story that has had the most impact on me actually is the reason I came to Japan Mm. Um, or one of the reasons I came to Japan while I was at university I was introduced to Angela Carter ah um, yep Nights at the um, Circus yes Nights at the Circus yes Um, what else have we got the Bloody Chamber the collection of fairy tales that she retold amazing Um, now just fun fact sorry to interrupt you mm. but like I did my A-level English when I was 29 I think in 2000 and um, I got an A, but <laughs> I was so happy, <laughs> like, with the mature <laughs> students. And um, we studied Nights at the Circus, Angela Carter. It's so wild. It's a wild world. Mm. So go ahead. Yeah, so this this whole Angela Carter connection kind of comes in and out of my life, really. I read all of her stuff when I was 18, 19. I pretty much got obsessed. And mm-hmm. um some of the things that she wrote about uh, included Japan, and she um, has a number of pieces of journalism that she wrote while she was living in Japan, and a few short stories as well. There's a collection called Fireworks, where she writes a few stories which are based on real events in her life. And I think that it was her writing about Japan that really got me interested in it. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah it just kind of sparked this this long-term interest that eventually led to me going there and then as it turns out while I was working in Japan I 
had a co-worker who had taken over her job at NHK back in the early 70s. This was 71, 72, something like that. And then now, actually, she has the um, connection at the university I'm studying at as well, where she was a lecturer and she was working with Kazuo Ishiguro back in the, what was that, the 80s now, probably? Wow. Um, So, yeah, she's kind of like this reoccurring figure all the way through my life so far anyway. Were you ever lucky enough to meet her? No, she died in the mid-90s. I can't remember the exact year. Okay. Um, So, no, never had that opportunity. What is it about Angela Carter's writing that, I mean, obviously there's that kind of recurring theme and that connection, but what is it about her writing and her storytelling that particularly piques you? I think the first collection I read was The Bloody Chamber, was the short stories. And so it was all these retellings of fairy tales, which had a feminist respin on them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that appealed to me very much at the time. I don't think I'd ever read anything quite like that. And her prose as well is incredibly verbose and purple. And uh-huh. um, really, <laughs> really just, I, I don't think I'd read anything quite like it. And it was quite intoxicating at the time. Um, yeah intoxicating verbal prose do you think that her writing influences your writing at all or is that just is it just simply a a love affair you have with that no I I went through this phase where I was reading Angela Carter and H.P. Lovecraft who's a very also a very purple horror writer yes and so I think the two of them together actually had quite an influence on me but not necessarily in what would be a good way nowadays I think I think two, maybe like a year and a half, two years ago, you could definitely see that more in my writing. And that's definitely been stripped away a little bit in the last year and a half, I think. Is that as Um, you've really developed your own craft and become more, been studying? Yes, I think it's it's the studying and the the developing of your own voice. And I think also it is a response to the feedback that I've received from other people and what's considered more an acceptable voice or acceptable style, I guess. Uh-huh. So, you know, it partly is marketing perhaps or trends. But yeah. Interesting. <laughs> I'm going to come back to that because feedback is a horror story in itself, isn't it? And <laughs> And I'm sure in in the last uh, year and a half since you've been doing your master's, it's something you have to have, isn't it, when you're doing a writing course like this? And I'm really interested to know how you develop the kind of humility to receive feedback and the confidence to receive receive feedback and how that's been. But I want to park that for now. Thank you. (laughs) And I can see you look so beautiful at the moment as well with this long flowing red hair and you've just got this gorgeous vibe going on at the moment. And um, perhaps we can talk about that as Mm. well. So I would like to give you your rock star introduction now, Laura. So (laughs) Laura was brought up in Buckinghamshire and spent most of her adult life living in Japan where she juggled careers as an English lecturer, a music journalist and concert photographer. She has served on the board of directors of Few Japan, which is for empowering women in Japan, and circumnavigated the earth by ship, helping to foster grassroots cross-cultural communication with Peace Boat. Laura headed Fuji Rock Festival's English language magazine from 2016 to 2021 and is an award-winning portrait photographer. 
In 2020, she received a scholarship to study on the MA in Creative Writing at the University of East Anglia and is currently in her second year about to embark on her dissertation. Amazing. But she started writing poetry at the age of 11 during a school trip in northern France while sitting in a World War I trench. Oh, golly, how very, very English A-level. <laughs> Oh, but by by the way, my dad was into all of that. And we went to uh, the World War II war sites as well. Very sobering. And I, I actually won a project competition writing a project about that as well. So we've got some kind of inspiring stuff, isn't it? Really? It is inspiring very, um, stuff. Very potent. Yeah. yeah. What's what would we studied two World War II poets at, in, at GCSE. Mm. Can you remember their names? Yeah, Wil- it's probably Wilfred Sassoon. Siegfried Sassoon. Siegfried yeah. Sassoon and... Wilfred Owen. Wilfred Owen. There you go. Mm. There you go. I got Wilfred Sassoon. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good mix. (laughs) She studied English literature at the University of York, where she was the section editor of the Campus Arts magazine and also interviewed bands and photographed for a gothic lifestyle magazine. Now, I I do want to come back to this kind of gothic. You've definitely got the gothic vibes going on there. It's never left. I think that also um, H.P. Lovecraft and uh, Angela Mm. Carter have got really gothic vibes about them as well, as far as I was uh, concerned. So she went on to into the book industry, first as a bookseller and then as a book buyer for a change of sci-fi fantasy shocks in the London. And it's so sucked that she quit and became an English teacher in 2005. <laughs> Bravo. And in 2006, she moved to Japan where she worked in a Eikaiwa, which is an English school where you do one-to-one uh, teaching with, with people who want to learn English. In Nagano, which is the countryside here in a really big skiing place, and Yokohama, before the company went bankrupt and she went freelance after that. In April 2011, she embarked on the 73rd Peace Boat Global Voyage, which we'll talk about later, working on the ship as an English teacher for 80 days, circumnavigating the world. So she also started working for a Japanese music magazine as a photographer after chance meeting on a Tokyo booze cruise and set up a music photography blog where she interviewed and photographed bands in the Tokyo music scene, the Mutekis, Feebat, and many others, including punk, rock, visual K, and metal bands. This led to being taken on by Smashing Magazine and eventually heading Fuji Rock Express. So um, many, many things to dig into here. I also uh, wanted to say here that Laura was the first photographer that I hired for my clients. Mm. So um, I do a one-year program and for the luxury package that people sign up to on my one-year program, I like people to get professional photographs done uh, because I think it helps people to build confidence, to be instructed, to collaborate with the photographer, to kind of humble themselves to the process and also just to have great profile photographs and lovely photographs. And Laura put a call out on Facebook saying, will anybody pay me for uh, portrait sessions? I really want to buy this piece of equipment. And so I will do these headshots. And I love a good ask like that. I love it. I love it when people can just ask for what they need and clearly tell you what they want. And that was when I got the light bulb above my head, which was, I'm going to hire her to photograph my one-year coaching clients. And so I booked Laura. I hope you got the piece of equipment. 
and uh, I think it was a lens it was a, uh, was it a, a new lens? camera lens I think yeah okay yeah. so you got a new camera lens and then of course you then forged uh, great friendships and relationships with the people who you uh, you photographed as well and took some gorgeous headshots for my uh, my beloved clients mm. so awesome so it's just it's <laughs> so interesting I, I mean this is why I love doing this podcast is just the variety of things that people do and the and just the the incredible variety of stuff that people do and how many different ways there are to lead a life. But first, Laura, why don't you tell me about your background and your upbringing and uh, your uh, ancestry? (laughs) Well, um, where to start? So I grew up in Buckinghamshire in a little village. It's quite, I'd say, semi-rural. So lots of fields, lots of trees. Um, it's quite near Pinewood Studios. Oh, right. There were lots of cows in the field opposite, lots of baby mm. cows. That's a nice memory. So I, I think I spent a lot of my uh, childhood running around, running around the countryside, <laughs> which was quite nice. After all of that, I went to university in York and I lived in York for four years. I moved to London. That's kind of all those things in a nutshell. Heritage-wise, it's quite interesting, actually. Although I was I was born in North London in Harrow, and then um, grew up in Buckinghamshire, like from the age of one until I left home. But weirdly, having come to Norwich, my great grandmother was from Norwich. So it's in this weird way, I've come like all the way back home again. So that's the kind of short version. What attracted you to English? What kind of what kind of child were you? A quiet child or a kind of extroverted child, sporty child, bookish child? I mean, what kind of that? I mean, those are real stereotypes there. For me, I know that I was just always I was always making up games in my head and then pulling everybody in to play the game. Like I remember turning my bedroom into a into a spaceship and then getting everybody in. Like I was the captain of the spaceship, obviously. <laughs> like getting all my like <laughs> friends and like my brother and his friends in to kind of be in this spaceship with me. Or I was always starting clubs. Yes. Yeah. Things like that. So I'm the oldest of three. Mm-hmm. And I think because of that, I think I was quite good at entertaining myself. Yes, because the other two were, you know, taking up the attention. So I, I just got very good at always having like on a on a trip to the seaside, for example, I'd be the one with the Walkman and the book in a bag, mm. kind of amusing myself. I remember going to the library quite a lot and like just devouring series of books like Sweet Valley High and um, <laughs> all those other things. Point Horrors as well when I got a bit older. I was just always reading stuff. It just was the the main way I entertained myself I think Mm. so then I think after the poetry thing came out of nowhere when I was about 11 Mm. I then received quite a lot of encouragement to read more widely and to write um, from my teacher at my grammar school I went to I remember found out that I was reading all these little point horror novels and I think might have been a little horrified so the next the next day I come into school and she gives me a list of books, which um, we had like The Weird Stone of Brisingham by Alan <gasps> Garner. That's one of my favourites. Yes. And that's yeah. all set near where I live as well. Yeah, oh, well, where I was yeah. raised. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. I, I think I reread that as an adult, actually. Yeah, I did as an adult as well. Yeah. I've, I read uh, The Owl Service as well. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, same author, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. And there, who else was on that list? There was Cider with Rosie, Laurie Lee. Yeah. Susan Cooper's The Dark is Rising, which is an amazing book. Oh, yeah, there were all sorts of things on there. And so I just 
worked my way through this list via the library. Mm-hmm. So she she deserves quite a lot of credit for pointing me in a more literary direction, I think. Not that there's anything wrong with horror. I do love horror still. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you read somebody who loves horror. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, do you still yeah. read now? Of course, of course. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I read everything, I feel. Um, mostly I read a lot of short stories because they're easy at yeah. the moment and do have a novel on the go at the moment but I find actually a lot of the writing and the the coursework that I have to do is kind of slowing me down quite a lot but yes I mean I could show you my bookcase over here and there's like an entire shelf of things I have not yet read and it's getting bigger <laughs> so. what are you reading at the moment what am I reading at the moment I have a book called cold enough for snow mm-hmm. which I just finished actually set in Tokyo and it's about a mother and daughter who come to Tokyo to just kind of wander the streets and talk about things and it's got some family some family stories it's very quiet very kind of measured prose it's very I I dare say it's quite Japanese yeah that's what I was gonna say is it a Japanese author no um but but whoever's written it has taken a, a Japanese stance on it somehow yes well she does have Asian heritage I think her mother is from Hong Kong it doesn't actually say in the bio but um so I don't know if that lends itself to that particular style but the most interesting thing about that book for me is that there's no actual dialogue in it it's all reported and it's this it definitely deserves another read because it's nice and short as well it's only like 90 pages so it's it's good but it's funny reading books which are set in Japan having now left because everything's like a bit heartbreaking oh is <laughs> it yes things. so many people say that who've left yeah Japan. yeah so you know she goes to these department stores or, or like a little convenience store and she buys onigiri and then it's like I used to go to department <laughs> stores and buy onigiri <laughs> yeah so I've been reading quite a lot of Japanese stuff since I left and I, it's it's all equally like it's extremely pleasurable to be able to picture these things very clearly in your head, but it also is really, it can be quite saddening, I guess. It's a kind of evocative, but also kind of viscerally felt somehow. Yeah, it's a bit painful. <laughs> oh. Yeah, so many um, people who've left Japan, like, report that it, I mean, I have, obviously have clients who've returned back to their home countries and so on, and there's very few people who are like, bye this is <laughs> like most people are really like yeah yeah yes it's a really peculiar feeling and I don't know if it's experienced by people who've left other countries to the same extent I mean I guess it must be but I feel like Japan's a very particular place with a particular yes. effect on people and yes if you've been living there for as long as some of us have and then you leave it's really bizarre adjusting to life beyond that grief so, a little bit isn't it yeah I think so yeah, yeah. but so there's something more to it there's something really yeah yeah people tend to yearn and the, mm. I think also there's something quite unique about the the expat life in Japan there's something quite democratic about it like I know all kinds of people mm, yeah. in the in the in the non-Japanese world so, you know, every I know all kinds of people, from people who are heading up companies to people who are working in the family, like as uh, housewives or house husbands. So it's mm. it's interesting to, to have 
and I don't know that like say Hong Kong or Singapore or some or Shanghai has that same kind of across the board like you get to know lots and lots of different people lots of different would you say what would you say like income brackets and things like that you just yeah all sorts of backgrounds and experiences yes and I think also because the the foreign population in Tokyo is quite small yeah in comparison to other cities I guess you do tend to make those connections Mm. because there are fewer people to kind of ghettoize yourself from interesting and you know people tend to hang out at the same places the same bars or the same I'm I'm just gonna go bars (laughs) more bars than bars (laughs) bars. (laughs) live houses and bars yes (laughs) so yeah I think it's a it's a real melting pot but it's a tiny melting pot isn't it Mm, a tiny melting pot yeah it is a tiny melting pot yeah really interesting and I think I was in a choir so again you get to meet people from all parts of Japanese society and from the you know expat expat community as well didn't your choir do Carmina Burana yeah I sang in yes. that yes yeah I sang in that like that was the last time I sang with that choir actually and in fact I came back for it I'd left because mm. they were doing a really really hard Bach piece a few, one of Bach's fugues and I was like no <laughs> it's too hard for me I know my limits and then they were like we're doing Carmina Burana and I was like can I come back and I had to re-audition <laughs> and go back oh that was just the most incredible feeling the most incredible it was beyond you know like when you feel like you're cosmically connected to the universe somehow mm. sing when when you're singing I don't know how you get that maybe it's from listening to music or reading a great book but it was just like I was on another level I can imagine seeing that. Where did you perform that? That must have been quite powerful, mustn't it? Yeah, I don't. Well, I was in the choir, so I don't know what it's like to see it live. <laughs> <laughs> but my, my friends who came to see it reported that it was very good. <laughs> and they're very kind as well. But it, for, that, for that as well, we didn't have an orchestra, a full orchestra. We had just timpani. And so mm. it's those massive kettle drums, you know, yeah. and oh, my God, I've got goosebumps now thinking about it. It was it was just such a terrific experience to oh. sing that. Yeah. So spooky. It is, isn't it? Really? I think it's a drunk, it's a drunken monk song or something, isn't it? Yeah. I heard that somewhere. Yeah. Drunk monk singing. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Amazing. What kind of music were you listening to then back when you were a teenager doing your GCSEs and A levels? Punk, rock, mm-hmm. heavy mm-hmm. metal. Yeah, Name me <laughs> and, a few and, cla- and classical music as well, weirdly. Bands. So this was the nineties. Yes. So it would have been things like Machine Head and Fear Factory mm-hmm. and the Smashing Pumpkins and Guns N' Roses and Metallica and Megadeth and Iron Maiden and Offspring, Green Day, and on and on and on. So it was kind of, I guess, the more accessible end of metal. Yes. And, and rock and sort of um, at that time, I guess that genre was a bit more in the ascendant and a bit more popular that was early 90s I guess by the end of the 90s it had all gone a bit new metal and was starting to kind of fade off a little bit not that it ever went anywhere it just didn't get much attention yeah so but I weirdly was I say weirdly not weirdly for me Um, I was also listening to classical music Um, because it helped me study I can't and I still can't today actually I cannot study with anything that has words same Um, so it has to be classical or jazz or something like ambient yeah same same in fact I find it hard to listen to any music with words ever 
oh, ever. Really? I never listen to any new music these days, really. It has mm. to be really good or mm. um, or nostalgic for me to be remotely interested. Strangely, yeah. I don't know how that came about because love ambient music yeah. and so on. <laughs> yeah, cool. So you went to, so it sounds like this English teacher had quite a big influence on you. Mm, mm, Is there, yes. can we get do a shout out? <laughs> shout out to mm. Kathy Davies, who Aww. was my uh, high school English teacher. And she really got me into writing and sort of encouraged me to write poetry and the occasional bit of short story and then was entering my <laughs> entering my writing into competitions which then started winning so that was I mean she I think she was my biggest motivator really sort of encouraging giving me feedback entering these things off into competitions for me and yeah, just helped kind of instill a love of writing and a love of literature in me. And I and also I really enjoyed her English classes. She had a very, how would I describe the way she taught? Like, I can't really describe it. <laughs> it was just one of those, it was one of those rooms that you would come into and I would just feel like, oh, okay. It was like a little safe space, I guess. Although she did once tell me to take all my earrings out because I had too many in. <laughs> No, it wasn't that safe. <laughs> you should just do it a job, I suppose. But uh, yeah, um, yeah, it's interesting that, isn't it? There's, I think, oftentimes the English teachers are kind of frustrated artists themselves. So those, what those of us who were a bit unusual, who you know hung out at the edges of things, were often felt quite well taken care of in with by our English teachers. It's almost mm. cliche. Uh, me too mm. <laughs> Mr Lally and Miss Strange yeah <laughs> yeah Miss Strange that's a good name yeah, yeah. Her, her, her brother was a priest Father Strange and he did my <gasps> grandma's funeral which is lovely oh <laughs> yeah no I, I, I think it's lovely <laughs> Father Strange, Strange. Yeah. I'm going to oh, use that in a future book <laughs> oh please do <laughs> Yeah. Father Strange, yeah, amazing. So you went to English uh, to study English at York University. Mm. And what was your university time like? I was a um, naughty university student. I wasn't super naughty. <laughs> I, I actually, I, in hindsight, I think I was too young. I think I was too immature when I went to university. Interesting. And I think I would have benefited from being slightly older. But on the other hand. I still have wonderful friends from that time and wonderful memories. And I don't think I would change it too much. But I, I had the chance to do some, a little bit of photography. I was working on the, the, the arts magazine. I started working for that little goth mag. So it was all, um, you know, all these things back then that still kind of resonate now don't yeah you? it's like there's a golden thread running through everything isn't it yeah and I think I mean the, the course itself I think my, my most I've got two enduring memories of studying English there and one of them was studying Anglo-Saxon and the other one is um this course on women and myths it was like feminist retellings of um fairy tales and myth mythology mm. and I think those two are the ones that have always stuck with me as you know the most memorable experiences yeah the women of myth was just you know you've kind of always sort of seen things in one particular way and then you branch out and see this new 
feminist interpretation on the way things are being told, the way these stories are told. I'm like, oh, I didn't realize there's an alternate way of looking at things. So that was, you know, very enlightening. Anglo-Saxon was incredibly difficult and I didn't really ever get the hang of it um, because I didn't understand language and how language worked. But I was still expected to translate these passages of Anglo-Saxon in my final exams. But the poetry and the, the literature and our tutor, who was uh, a guy called Sid Bradley, took us on these, this wonderful trip up to Northumberland where we were running around Anglo-Saxon sites and going to Durham Cathedral and we went to Lindisfarne. And yeah, it was just a very good memory of, of something that was actually incredibly difficult. So Sounds a little yeah. bit magical. I love it. It was. That. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, my favourite thing about Lindisfarne was actually getting to stay on the island because the tide comes in and you can't get off the island. So you just have to wait until the next day when the tide's gone out. Um, but they have all these big fat eider ducks on there and they're so squidgy and yeah. yummy. Um, <laughs> and I, I've never forgotten them. <laughs> they were great. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. I, I love that you said like, oh, I didn't know there was different ways to do things. And that's the whole backbone of this podcast, this of mm. these conversations that I'm having with people is to marry together the coaching with stories. So mm. that it's really, you know, there are different ways to do things and we'll come on to the way that you kind of super innovated your life in the last two years as well. But I also think there's a real self-awareness to saying I was too young then, I was mm. too young. Um, were you 18 when you went to university? Yeah, I have this. I don't even know if this is true anymore. In, well, um, think, oh, my God, you're such a great coaching client. I'm not even sure it's true. <laughs> so go on then. You know, it's, it's a long time ago. I have a memory of of wanting to, to, like, delay going to university. But I don't know if I ever voiced it uh. um, or not. And I, I seem to think... In hindsight, I kind of knew at that time that maybe I didn't want to go straight away. And also, I think I wanted to go traveling. Huh. And yeah, but I did that later, obviously. <laughs> but yeah, it's, you know, where I work currently, I'm working with quite a lot of young people, some of whom are about to graduate from high school. And a couple of them are like, I don't know what to do with my life. I don't know if I want to go to university. I don't know what job I want, blah, 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 blah. And I just kind of say to them, you are... You've got so much time. Yeah. Take a year off, take two, figure something out. And, you know, you'll hopefully make a, a good decision at some point. But you don't have to meet the expectations that people have on you or that you have on yourself, I think. Um, you can kind of take some time out and do something for yourself that will hopefully point you in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's a, a really great insight to have there it's funny isn't it when you're 18 or 19 it just feels and, and you're from a certain kind of background it feels desperately imminent that you need to get out to university but I can mm. remember saying that I wanted to do a gap year and being told that I was a financial millstone around my parents neck and they wanted me to get through as, as quickly as possible yes thanks dad well if you think and, about that whole conveyor belt when we were when we were younger yeah. like you go to university or you don't or you get a job then you get married and you have kids and you have the mortgage and blah, blah, blah. And that whole like conveyor belt of life. And I remember thinking, oh, you know, by the time I'm 25, I'll have a house and a husband and maybe a child. Actually, the child, I think, might just not have, might have just been like a cat <laughs> or, or a chicken. 
but you know like I have I remember having this idea of what my life would look like by the time I was 25 and then of course it got to 25 and none of that was true and I'm glad it wasn't <laughs> so yeah, yeah for sure it's really interesting so I ended up going when I was 20 in the end because I just said okay mm. then fine I'll I'm going to take a year out but I'm going to pay you rent so that mm. I'm not a financial millstone around your neck and I'm going to go and try and improve my grades and I'm going to hang out and become a subversive <laughs> and really annoy you <laughs> and then go to <laughs> university when I want to so I ended up going to university when I was 20. You just mentioned Anglo-Saxon and the yeah. women and myth I wonder also what's one book that really stood out to you from university? It's got to be Angela Carter. Okay, yeah. <laughs> We've got to go back to her again. I think, yeah, of all the books I read, it would be The Bloody Chamber. The Bloody um, Chamber. Because, yes, it has become my favourite book. I still reread it now. I do find the more I reread it, the more, the more purple I find that language. And sometimes I do find it a little bit impenetrable. But I persist because I love it. And I, I just think it is, it is that book that I just remember... I remember having the sticky note on my wall with like Angela Carter, the bloody chamber, like note to self, find it in the, find it in the bookshop. My copy, I think, I don't know if it's my original copy. It might be, is still with me, but yeah. So that's gone with me all around the world as well. Like I, that came to Japan with me <laughs> and now it's back in England as well. So yeah. It's incredible how a, a good book that really resonates with somebody can take you so far. Yeah. And really ignite your philosophies and values in life as well somehow yeah I think the sort of like awakening of things that happened in that in that reading just an alternate way of looking at stories and all an alternate way of of thinking about the world that I'd grown up into that point and yeah also that way with language I'd, I'd never read anything like that to that point so it was all a mix of everything that I needed in one little slim book. So when you left university, you started working in the book industry as such. Well, actually, I started working in bookshops when I was about 16 or 17. And I worked in bookshops all the way through uni. Yeah. And then beyond that for a couple of years. And actually, book selling is great. I love book selling. I love hanging out in bookshops. I love just putting books on shelves or yeah. like reading them a little bit when no one else is looking and because I was based quite close to London at one point doing that I often got to go into London to go to like these little publisher dinners where you'd you kind of get to meet the writers or the actors or whoever was publishing a book you'd have these like nice evenings out meeting these people and discussing the books it was great fun and then somebody made a comment about how somebody in a company in London was looking for uh, somebody to take over their book buyer position. And I won't name the company, but I mean, from that description you mentioned earlier, you can probably figure it out if you know who they are. I ended up working for them. And so I was actually buying books and DVDs for them. Most of the DVDs were sort of anime, Japanese horror, science fiction, fantasy. Da, 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 da. So again, the Japan thing comes back. Yeah there and they were just awful to work for really unpleasant um, and I think I lasted about a year and a half maybe wow. and then I kind of actually drove me to a bit of a nervous breakdown so I ended up taking a month off of work and then when I went back I handed in my notice but it took like another month of seeing out your notice 
and then I couldn't find a job for a while and eventually a, a friend of mine had been teaching in Poland and he came to stay with us in London and he said oh well you've got a degree in English you'd probably make a really good English teacher why don't you try English teaching so I thought about it and I was like well I guess I could give it a go so I did my teacher training having never taught I did teach training in London and then started working for a little Japanese school in Ealing hmm. and then yeah that eventually led to me moving to Japan with the same company yeah so we'll quickly gloss over that little unpleasant moment in my in my book career <laughs> that's uh, that's plenty I mean I just think it's so I mean, I'm really sorry to hear that you had a bit of a nervous breakdown and took time off work, but way to go for taking what you needed to taking mm. the time out what you needed and then quitting and then just following what presented itself to you next. Mm. You know, I also did get to spend the summer on my allotment <laughs> gardening. So that was quite therapeutic too. Where did you live in London yeah. at that time? I was just outside of Ealing in a yeah. little place called Perivale. On the end of the central line. Okay. But we were like the last house before the woods. And there was be this like this wooded hill kind of going into Greenford. And we were the last house. So it, at night you'd be sitting there, you could hear the deer screaming, foxes barking. It was very um magic. Yeah, mythical. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, magic, mythical, yeah. legendary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Huge water rats as well. Nice. <laughs> very wind in the willows. Mm. Yeah. so you were at the little Japanese school and then did you ask them or did they invite you to go to Japan I think I must have asked because I think I decided after a while that you know actually I'm doing this in London but I could do this anywhere and I really got on with my Japanese students as well ah so um, you felt a kinship with them and yes yeah, yeah. And also, I mean, financially, of course, the highest salary was in Japan. At the time. Exactly. And you know what? <laughs> Don't tell anybody, but that's why I came to Japan as well. Because it was like, yeah. Spain, I really want to live in Spain. And then I was like, euros or euros, euros or, or yen. yen. Euros mm. or yen. And that was, it was straightforward yen. Yeah. But what nobody tells you is that the cost of living in Japan is quite high. <laughs> so. Yes, it is quite high. And there's a lot to do. And Mm. There's a lot, there's plenty to do. There's plenty of places to take your money as well, isn't it? But when exactly. you, once you live here, you find ways to just have an ordinary life, don't you? Yeah, true. true. It's, I mean, it's extraordinary always, but yeah, mm. I mean, yeah. I don't kind of balk at my grocery shopping these days. No, I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, England. Um, anyway. <laughs> Yeah, so moving on. So you so you moved to Japan. You moved to Japan with one of the yes. big, 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 big English language teaching schools, right? Yes. And that was quite interesting because I, you know, this big language school that had this school in London, the way things operated in London was completely different to how they operated in Japan. Yes. Um, so I get to Japan and this little Akira school in the mountains. And they're like, Oh, you can't teach like that. That's how I was taught to teach. And they're like, no, we use this method. Mm, no <laughs> so I kind of played along for a little bit and then I went off and was doing my own thing in class and everyone seemed quite happy yeah um, as long as you can just be like smile and nod and 
fulfill as yeah. many rules as you possibly can yeah but yeah I had specified when they offered me the job that was quite funny as well they, they three things they said you can you can have uh, for your request for somewhere to live so I said okay not Tokyo and not big city preferably by the sea in Kyushu and I ended up in Nagano in the mountains <laughs> so, in the mountains no nowhere near the sea and definitely not in Kyushu <laughs> basically I think I wanted to end up in Kagoshima um, oh I love Kagoshima but yeah um, I never got there so, so yeah obviously that was the way for you to kind of make your make your money and so on how did you start to kind of build a life around you how did you start to create the lifestyle and the life that you wanted once you got to to Japan because you know, English teaching in an Aikaiwa is not really a lifestyle choice, is it? No. <laughs> I don't think I really got into living in Japan until I went freelance, until that company went bankrupt, um, because they moved me to Yokohama. Which is the second city here in Japan. It's yes, it, I think it was also their biggest school in the country as well. Okay. And... Even then, it was difficult to meet people or do anything outside of work because of the hours we were working. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't until I went freelance and I started going places and meeting other people. And that's also when I moved to Tokyo and, you know, I moved to Asagaya. So I was much more in the thick of things. And um, Asagaya, and there are a lot let's of just, around. can you just paint a picture of Asagaya for us? Asagaya is about 10 to 15 minutes outside of Shinjuku on the Chuo line. It's a very sort of, I guess, what we call shitamachi. So it's a kind of downtown place. And by that, I mean, it's got quite a local vibe to it. It's also got a really good bar and music scene. There's lots of jazz bars and little little live houses. And I guess the focal point of Asagara at that time would have been uh, Gamuso. That, yeah, which um, was a foreign-run place, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, so they were putting on art shows and, and gigs and... I think the clientele there most of the time was sort of 50 50 uh Japanese and foreign yes uh, so it was quite an interesting mix of people yeah yeah lots yeah. and lots of different kind of alternative bands drag acts mm. art shows like you said yeah. yeah sadly no longer there yes but... it did close down that's right mm. yeah so so it's yeah. got that kind of vibe it, it's got like it, it suits you I think is what well, I want to kind of paint a picture of like Asagaya, that whole train line, which has got like Nakano, Koenji, Asagaya, Ogikubo, Kichijoji, mm, mm, got this mm. very kind of, I want to say artistic, but it's it's more than no, that. No, it is though. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of writers and artists and musicians around there. Yes. Um, yes. And I mean, I remember one of my friends I met sitting next to her in the bar there one night was like in a 80s pop band. <laughs> And we just got chatting, like, oh, hi. <laughs> and then I didn't realise for a very long time that she was very well known. Yeah. Um, also, weird fun fact, the, the house used in Ring, is it Ring or Juon? One of the big Japanese movies, I think it's Juon, was filmed in a house in Asagaya. So there you go, a little horror reference for you. Well, it keeps coming back, doesn't it? These golden threads <laughs> running through your story. So you went freelance and you've got all this stuff going on. So how did you start to kind of pull this community together around you? So it was 2010. I can't believe it's that long ago since that particular school went bankrupt. And then you had this like 
you had a really nice posse, a really nice crew of people here, didn't you, that you you hung mm. out with, all kind of similar values, all, you know, got a slightly punk vibe about them. How how did you pull together all of that and get involved in Fuji Rock and everything? I think a lot of it is just chance meetings with people who you click with very quickly. Yeah. Okay, so the first magazine that I started working for, I got that job. Uh, because I had just recently upgraded from a film camera to a digital camera. This mm-hmm. was probably 2010, 2011. And I was on a Tokyo Bay booze cruise um, with a group of people. And one person on there saw me with my camera and, and came up to me and said, oh, can I have a look at your photos? And weirdly, I found these photos on my Facebook the other day. But she said, I'm looking for a photographer for my magazine. I was like, oh, yeah, what kind of magazine is it? And she said, oh, it's a, it's a rock magazine. I was like, hi. <laughs> <laughs> and then a week later, I was at this gig in the top of La Forêt. There were all these incredibly gorgeous bandmen all dressed up doing a fashion show. And then at the end of the fashion show, they put on a gig. And I was shooting it. And I don't think I had photographed a band since I was at university. So it was a good oh, 10 years. And then it carried on from there. So I was mostly shooting bands for this. And these were all visual K bands. So, you know, they're incredibly good looking, very visually delicious. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like 70s glam never went away. So it's like 70s glam with this sort of uh, punk aesthetic, I guess. Yeah, it was such fun to shoot. The music's not always to my taste yes. that way, but visually it was so much fun. It was a really good time. <laughs> and then I eventually out of that started a blog. So I was interviewing bands that I was meeting around, going to all these gigs and through all these various connections that I was making. So I was interviewing bands, photographing bands. Through that blog, I remember chasing a band, a heavy metal band from Osaka called Crossface, who are now a really huge deal, actually. They went on to become incredibly popular and very successful outside of Japan, which actually, for a Japanese rock or heavy metal band is quite difficult yeah quite unusual um, yeah. in the except outside like underground scenes or something yes yeah yeah and I had been chasing them for an interview for about six months and I was emailing their manager every time they came through Tokyo I was like can I have an interview can I have an interview can I have an interview hi can I have an interview and one day I'm getting ready to leave my school job and he comes back to me at like three o'clock in the afternoon he's like yeah can you be here at 4 30 like Sure. <laughs> I remember flying off to, I think it was Yoyogi Stadium. Mm-hmm. Well, no, it wasn't Yoyogi Stadium. It's the live house that was there. Was it Shibuya Axe, the one that's been knocked down? Yeah. I can't remember now. Anyway, I turned up out of breath because it was warm as well. So I was a bit sweaty and horrible. I had my camera, my recorder, and I interviewed two members of the band. Then I went upstairs to the guest the VIP section upstairs and I was just sitting in the auditorium like biding my time waiting for this gig to start and this uh very tall foreign guy walks over to me and he's like hey what are you doing here <laughs> or like well in nicer terms than that but he introduced himself and he said he was photographing the band that night and he asked who I was working for I was like I'm not working for anyone I'm working for myself tonight 
And he said, oh, maybe you'd like to come and work for my magazine. So then he contacted the editor of what was then Smashing Mag, mm-hmm. and they took me on. And so then I ended up writing live reviews and eventually shooting. I just kept, I don't think they wanted me as a photographer because they had plenty, but I just kept asking and eventually they gave in. And so I was at, ended up doing that for them for a few years. And then the first time I got offered the Fuji Rock job, I couldn't do it because I was in Spain that summer. Mm. And then the following year, I worked on the Fuji Rock Express as just a writer. And then the next year was offered the position sort of heading it and putting that wonderful schedule together where you have to schedule six writers over four days. I've seen this schedule. It's like these tiny little skinny post-it notes. Or, oh, that's I mean, my method, yes. Blew my mind. Porn. Yeah. Blew my mind. That Something thing that... used to take me like two days. It would oh, take me two no. days in my kitchen with post-it notes. I just <laughs> like, you no, know, made me feel twitchy that. But it's absolutely amazing as well that you had that dedication <laughs> to do that and get it just right. So you have to move everything around, don't you? Mm. Something that strikes me here is it's just your kind of self-confidence to just ask for things. Like you kept asking this band over and over again if you could work with them. And then the other thing is um, there's a there's a kind of career methodology kind of thing that's been labelled planned happenstance. So mm. it's that sense that you've got this readiness, so you're ready you're a writer, you've got your camera, you've got your confidence, you've got your willingness to ask. And then things just happen. So that gentleman approached you and, you know, you're ready and you were able to say yes. And then that opened the doors to something else, uh, which opened the doors to something else, which eventually had you kind of heading up the team for the magazine for Fuji Rock. Fuji Rock, by the way, is the kind of, it's kind of like Reading or Reading Festival or Glastonbury Festival, something like that, but huge, massive. Yeah, it's the biggest outdoor festival in Japan. Yeah. And I think it's 30,000, 40,000 people over the weekend. Yeah. I went 10 years ago as a participant, as a, as just a, but I also worked on my friend's fish and chip store. (laughs) Yeah, the fish and chip shop. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's the worst job in the world. I think you might have served me fish and chips there. I think I have served you fish and chips. I mean, it was was good fun, but it was hard work and disgusting. But I got to see Bjork, which was nice. Yeah, that was a wonderful year, wasn't it? It I I was reviewing her. I still think that's my favourite piece of music music writing I've ever done. Oh, really? I'll have to seek that out. Oh, don't. (laughs) Okay, I won't. So, um, so So where did you get this kind of like I call I like it like strategic cheek to just keep asking and asking and asking and not get like oh I don't know at what point my attitude to this changed but I think at some point I used to be quite terrified of asking people for things because I didn't want to get get rejected but at some point I think in terms of the photography and the music I think I realized that like the worst they can say is no yeah and if they say no, then I'll just move on. Although in some cases I didn't move on, I just carried on <laughs> asking nicely. Yeah, so I think, I don't even really know when that happened, but there was a change in attitude that occurred. Yeah, that kind of just made me slightly more tenacious about yeah. doing what I want to do. And I think, I also, I think I was enjoying it so much that was more motivating than anything else. And especially for you, the blog and things, you know, I wasn't getting paid for that. I was doing it all off of my own 
dime as it were so I think it was just the, the pure pleasure of doing it and you know photographing some really huge bands and and talking to people about music which is one of my passions and I think it was the first time I remember noticing a change in my attitude towards things mm. uh, yeah and what was the result of that then it was just that you got to play a, a big game yeah I guess <laughs> yeah you know you just get to play if you don't ask because you're too ashamed or worried about what was going to happen or being rejected then you just don't get to play do you I think one of the reasons I pursued that band so much is because I knew they were going to be big and I knew that once they were big I would not get access to them. interesting so I was like I have to do it now because I want I know that you know this time next year it's not going to happen Amazing. But I remember seeing that band uh, at that show and that was they just I think they just come back from doing like their first overseas show and they were really like pumped up and excited and then I saw them in 2013 I think it was December 2013 they'd just come back from their first European tour and they were absolutely on fire they were I've never seen a show like it before or since it was so good it gave me I even want to think about it now it gives me goosebumps and the, the that same photographer who was at that show he photographed that gig and he said that my report gave him goosebumps it was such a magic show. Yeah, it was really impressive to see this band going from, you know, local success to international success. Beautiful, mm. beautiful. So I'd like to shift gears a little bit now and start mm. talking about your kind of CSR activities, uh, corporate mm. social responsibility activities, and also your connection to Peace Boat. So do you want to explain about Peace Boat a little bit and then tell us about your experience on that and what yeah kind of life-changing experience that was and then your introduction to few the uh, organization for empowering women here so and we can peace, we can move into yeah. the modern day then and um, start <laughs> to land actually. the interview <laughs> peace boat is a non-government organization i believe i think i've got mm -hmm. that correct it was started i think in the late 80s early 90s by a group of university students who wanted to travel to i think what must have been Korea, South Korea, to kind of foster some grassroots connections about the things that they were studying. Because I, if I remember this correctly, I think they realised that what they were studying was not quite the truth of things, especially as the relationship between South Korea and Japan and well and North Korea and other you know Asian countries it can be a little bit fraught. Yeah, there's some of, historical of, stuff there. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So I think their aim was to, you know, let's meet these people face to face and, you know, get this sort of grassroots conversation going between people rather than going through textbooks or whatever else. Yeah. And it's now become this huge cruise ship now, which um, goes, <laughs> goes around the world two or three, four times a year. And they have the southern route and the northern route. Um, so depending on which cruise you're on you'll either be hitting like the Maldives and Easter Island or you'll be going through northern Europe the Mediterranean further north and it's it is the most magical organ I keep saying I keep talking about magic a lot today oh um, my friend <laughs> this is this is basically where my life is lived <laughs> don't worry it is the most magical experience I I've never had eight days like it and I ne probably never will ever again it was so good. So I was on board teaching English 
And I guess the interesting thing about the method on board is that it's all needs based. So you, you negotiate that curriculum with your students and then you don't really have much access in terms of to things like resources, you know, textbooks, photocopiers. It's all really straight out of your backpack stuff. But you, you become quite resourceful. So, you know, we'd always have these speakers on board who would be coming in to do different things. So I would just grab them and ask them to come to class. And then my students would interview them for an hour mm-hmm. and just, you know, find out a bit more about their lives, about whatever topics they were talking about. Yeah. And then, of course, in addition to that, we're doing things on land. So, you know, you get into a port and some days you're doing an activity or other days, you know, you've got your free time. I was also teaching yoga and uh, running rock nights. (laughs) Okay, so we haven't even talked about yoga yet. You're a qualified yoga teacher as well, aren't you? I'm an overachiever. (laughs) (laughs) I, I generally find that if I get if I enjoy doing something, I like to do it to as far a degree as possible which is why I haven't started wine tasting classes yet because I'll yeah, end no. up being a sommelier and <laughs> um, so or something uh, you know just and also I just wanted to kind of mention that that people do pay to go on the peace boat so people like Japanese people do actually pay as yes. guests to go on a cruise right so they're actually they're on a cruise they're on a holiday but mm. there's all this education and the idea is to create these kind of cultural conversations with people and learn from mm. learn about stuff not from textbooks but by actually visiting yeah. all these different ports with the mm. with the goal of creating more peace mm. and the interesting thing of course is it's not really a traditional cruise in that the entertainment is mostly passenger generated yes everybody is bringing a skill that they have so I, at the time, had the yoga mm-hmm. um, and the collection of MP3s on my iPhone. <laughs> and, but other people were talking about their experiences doing certain things or were teaching a sport. There was lots of go and... Go being like uh, chess kind of thing. Yes, yes, yes. There was probably some mahjong as well. Just yes. Like, yes, there were all sorts of things going on on board. So what was your um, big takeaway yeah. from that then? I think I came off that ship feeling like I could do anything. You know, there was so much opportunity in meeting other people and learning from other people. And I generally am quite a solitary. uh, Most of the things I do are by myself. (laughs) So the 80 days of, you know, not being able to get away from anybody. You know, I had a roommate who luckily actually slept most of the time, (laughs) which was really good. I had the place to myself. But yeah, so actually being in a in a, a kind of quite pressure cookery environment, I guess, with all these people who are all having an amazing time and meeting people and having experiences and learning about things. Yeah, it's quite empowering. So talking about empowering then. So, of course, we experienced the earthquake in March 2011. Mm. And at that point, I was the president of a, an organization called Few for Empowering Women. And we invited an enormous range of MPOs to come and and NGOs to come and speak for us on what they were doing in their disaster relief in the April following that. And Peace Boat was one of the people who had mobilized, gone up to Tolhoku to do what's called first response because within a disaster that magnitude, there's different phases of response and first response is things like clearing up 
and just hygiene and just all those things that need to happen immediately for people. And so then we were impressed by Peace Boat and we invited them to be our social impact partner there. And then you came back and spoke for a few for empowering women, didn't you, with another mm. person called Panya Lincoln. And so you you were talking about Peace Boat and you were speaking very eloquently about it. And I think as a result, you got a mem- free membership and then you mm. ended up joining the board of directors at some point. Yes. Yeah, I remember you contacting me. I think you called me up. And um, you said, oh, you know, I think you'd be really good for this position on the board. And I think at the time I was like, me? <laughs> really? Yeah, that's how um, I, I love that about things like this. So I love this about few. It's like people are often like me. Oh, all right, me. then. And then that's also quite empowering as far as I can say anyway. Mm. Yeah. I remember that meeting because I had my grey pinstripe suit on. <laughs> it's like the first and last time I wore that suit you were having a go I was trying it you was, in disguise <laughs> yeah but yeah joining the book I mean and few was 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 a great uh, place to be I mean just meeting all those different women doing all those different things was was really great and the monthly meetings just a little bit of learning something new where was that place? It was it was it in Aoyama? Where was it? Um, yeah, it was called place. the Wesley Center, I think, wasn't it? Yes, it was in Hiro. Yeah, Hiro was that kind of triangular shaped room. So yes. Hiro is like quite a upmarket area of Tokyo, but we had it in the yeah. There was this really kind of open room. That was a good room actually. It always felt cozy but big enough. Mm, yeah, mm. yeah, and I, I think I, I, I had not really met many professional women before joining few so it was really nice to to meet all these people and, and and actually see you know what other people were doing and the potential things that you could be doing because I was still at that point you know teaching was still paying the rent yeah but then it kind of really started getting me thinking about well you know there's other things I could possibly try and I remember I mean the CSR job my so my position was corporate social responsibility yes. and I do remember having this very um <laughs> grueling job of going through that list of all of those NGOs and NPOs that had set up and checking who was still in action <gasps> yeah a few years later yeah and so many of them had sort of disappeared yeah they'd kind of popped up done their job and then and then finished and then there was, uh, you know, talking to all the other potential partners that we could have worked with, like Lighthouse. That was the trafficking. trafficking yeah. Yes. The, against trafficking um, women. Yeah. And there was Tell. Um, yeah, Tokyo English Lifeline for the um, yeah. mental health. Yeah. Yeah. And who else did we work with? I don't recall offhand. Yeah. But yeah. So many good. Um, oh, Mirai no Mori. Oh, oh yes. yes. Yeah, I've got a very strong connection with them. Now they work with orphans. Yeah. Not orphans, children in care homes. What am I talking about? Some people are orphans, but most it's yes. only 20 or 30%, I think. Actually, mm. most people are being looked after in care because of difficulties in the family, mm. ranges of difficulties. Okay. Yeah. Wonderful. Amazing. So I kind of feel like we can start to move into kind of closing out now. CSS. Career strategy yes, yes. seminar. So obviously you kept in touch with few and mm. you know, perhaps continue to go. And then you had got to a kind of you'd got to a kind of critical point, I think, where you were kind of ready to leave, but also were there was something going on, wasn't there, where you wanted to do something? And yeah, yeah. So you joined, I had go on. 
I had kind of realized that my career was not going anywhere. At least my teaching career, I think, had gone as far as it could possibly have gone. Um, you know, at that point, I was teaching at university. And in order for me to get a, a sort of full time or, or tenured position, I would have needed to go and get a, an, a another MA. Because <laughs> the, the teaching qualification I have is equivalent to an MA, but it just doesn't say master's degree on it. So that's, that wasn't going anywhere. Yeah, I had also been quite sick. And I think that whole experience, I was just like, something needs to change. Something's waiting like, to happen. Yeah, my lifestyle can't continue on like this anymore. And I was trying to write. I was writing because for a long time I hadn't been able to write for a few years because I'd been quite depressed, you know, but then I'd come out the other side of that and the writing was back on track. And I was like, I need to do something. So it was more about trying to find some balance. And then I had all these stupid ideas like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go do a master's in education because I want to carry on teaching. And then I went to see you at this career strategy seminar. In my capacity which, as coach for 20 minutes, yes. I think, or something. Yes. Like speed yeah, coaching. Like tw- so I have like, to be was, very, very direct in those situations, right? Yes. Yeah. But it was it was really good because I turned up with like, oh, I want to do this and I want to do that and blah, blah, blah. And you just were extremely good at like cutting through all of that bullshit audience Sarah was basically saying <laughs> she's like this lights you up talking about that doesn't why don't you do this I and think it was first... more reverse more like why are you talking about doing that mm. and you were like mm. oh. <laughs> I think I was talking about wanting to do that because that's what felt like other or linguistics or something yeah. Oh, yeah it was the should yeah. it was the should version the should option yes so I was very much toying with the idea of this is what I should do and this is actually what I want to do. And luckily I chose the path of what I want to do <laughs> instead. And so we put together this plan and I think it was like a three year plan, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, I think um, yeah, three to five year plan. I always get people to plan on that kind of timeline just yes. so they can see the spaciousness of op- opportunity. Yes. Yeah. And then I remember coming away from that and I was on the train to work the following morning and I made a list of all the things that each of those would each of those things would involve and this is based on Catherine North's Queen Sweep right yeah where she tells you to like assign an actual proper verb not just do something but like collate organize send you know like very specific action verbs yeah and so I made this whole like little list of all these little sub actions that had to happen in order for those things to take place and then I just kind of started checking them off bit by bit and then I ended up actually that three-year plan was accomplished in two years so what was that then well the first part was to get out of Japan because that was the hardest thing to do wasn't it yeah so it was a case of finding where I was going to go next which was Um, uh, I ended up in Spain but Bali in between (laughs) no oh yeah so I went to Bali in between that wasn't (laughs) in the original plan but it's it was a it was a nice detour yeah yeah and was that 200 or 300 hours you did there? Yoga. 200. 200, 200. Uh, yeah, yoga hours, yeah. yeah. So you're training. I'm just trying to remember. I think it was 200. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I had been doing yoga for years and it was one of those sort of bucket list things I wanted to do. Where it's yeah. like, I want to go and train to be a yoga teacher. And it was probably actually the worst time to train to be a yoga teacher because I was exhausted emotionally and physically from from leaving Japan I was definitely not in the best place 
to be around a bunch of strangers doing something quite intense for a month in um, lycra <laughs> in lycra and also i was by far the biggest person there i was like i was a big yogi so you know there are things that i had been able to do in the past and being sick had caused me to put on quite a lot of weight so there are things i had been able to do in the past as a yogini that i was no longer able to do but what I really did enjoy doing was uh, watching other people do them. <laughs> it was like, awesome, you can do crow pose, yay. I have been doing yoga for like 20 plus years. I still can't do a crow pose. And I probably never will, and it's fine. Yeah, and um, that's what yoga's all about. Yes. It's not a checklist. Um, exactly. And it kind of made me realise, actually, I really enjoy doing this, but I don't enjoy the competitive element of it that creeps in sometimes. Yeah. It's like you don't have to get yourself into the most contorted positions possible to be to be doing yoga you know no. like sometimes you can just sit on the floor <laughs> and that's fine the more bolsters the better yeah so that was great again one of those things in hindsight i could probably have waited a little longer to do but still it was a good transition yeah. i suppose out of japan over to bali and then on to mm. spain right yeah i mean bali is like the most magical place on earth i love it it's one of my favorite places and i would gladly go back anytime <laughs> and yeah and then i ended up in spain teaching just as an interim thing because there was some uncertainty uh, with the university i was applying to as to whether or not i was a british student so british students and eu students at the time had much lower fees than international students and i of course could not have afforded to be international despite the fact that I have a passport and an accent, <laughs> which uh, would suggest that I am quite British. Yeah. So anyway, I went there. That was actually a terrible teaching experience on the whole. Some of my students were wonderful. Most of them were not. But I did make some wonderful friends. And I lived by I lived by the lived beach. By the, I, I loved that because we both moved to the beach at the yes. same time. So we were like comparing our beach photographs. <laughs> and I just loved that so much. I used to go and walk on the beach every morning, unless, of course, there was a storm or something. Yeah. But I'd be on the beach every morning, walking up and down. It was it was great. Bucket list again. And then, of course, halfway through that, COVID hit. So I was stuck in my house for seven weeks by myself for that first period of COVID. That was like March 2020. Yes. Yeah. So I remember having my interview for the MA during that time. So actually, I'd already done my application at that point, and I'd spent the few months before that writing and sort of preparing something. And then I had my interview during that time, and I, I remember the person who interviewed me, I sort of explained that I had left Japan with the intention of doing this course, and that I was currently in Spain. And they, they said to me, so have you applied anywhere else? Like, nope. <laughs> but again it's one of those things where uh, and it comes back to what you were saying about chasing after things that mm -hmm. you know that are, are heading in the right direction I don't think at any point I considered that it might not happen yeah. <laughs> and it was only in the last few weeks when I was kind of waiting to hear if I'd got this scholarship where I was just like what the fuck have you done <laughs> like, that's quite normal you have, you have given up everything to come and do this and there's this horrible possibility that it's not going to happen what have you done 
Bravo yeah. you for not letting that derail you though. I mean, cause some people would derail at that point, but it's also not unusual for people to do that. I mean, you're not the only person who I've taken through to a masters of literature. Mm. I'm like, they got it and everything. We were like, yay. And then the next coaching session, they're like, what the fuck have I done? Who do I think I am? And then, mm. you know, of course, that was no surprise to me who listens to people all day, every day. But like, it's also like, oh, no, <laughs> yeah, don't, don't not do it. Because <laughs> yeah, I just love seeing people thriving in something that they love in, a, in an academic setting as well or whatever it is. But yeah, is yours a Masters of Literature? Oh, it's creative writing, right? Yes, yours? yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um, you got in, you got a scholarship. And then I came back to England in the middle of COVID. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> so do you actually, um, so you live in Norwich now, is that right? I do. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I live here and I've been here for nearly a year and a half now. And I was teaching part-time at the City College, but then again, students, amazing, everything else rubbish. So I quit. I was just like, yeah. okay, I'm done. Probably should have had a better plan than let's teach quit teaching and then find out what happens um <laughs> but I'm in the process of it I work at a theatre in town I'm just pulling pints and making coffee part-time right. and that's fine yeah it's nice work people I work with are nice I get to go to a theatre sometimes and Norwich is a great place it's very artistic there's lots of people here lots of writers lots of people a little off the beaten path who are doing things a little off the beaten path I think so it's a nice place to be and it's small it's so different from Tokyo like there's a horizon <laughs> so it's it's weird sometimes like I look back at all of that time I spent in Tokyo and in Japan and I'm just like who was that person what was it doing like that life is so different to the one I have now I sometimes look back and I'm like, it's no wonder, it's no wonder you're so tired. <laughs> you know, I was doing so much and I had so, you know, such a good network of people, these wonderful people that I knew. Yeah, then to kind of come back and have to kind of set up all over again. You forget how long it takes to form those connections. Okay, yeah. I mean, I haven't done that for, for a long time. So, mm. yeah, I can imagine making friends. <laughs> Uh, making friends when you're you know when you're in your early 40s also yeah. is quite hard yeah yeah it's a different kettle um, of fish isn't it I mean luckily you know being being on this course I've made some really good friends and Norwich is a, a quite gregarious place there's plenty of people to meet but I mean again the whole Covid situation has made it much more difficult because yeah people don't tend to mingle in the same way they used to and I think I also personally am just a bit like everybody two meters please <laughs> but yeah I think things will improve and most importantly though the studying's going well the writing's going well and I've almost got my photography back up and running again yes so. I've seen some of your latest photographs so you've set up a studio and a little studio at home and stuff is that right yeah so I can set up all of my my camera my my studio stuff in our living room in the house I'm living in mm. I have a very tolerant landlady so. how nice um. <laughs> and and so I want to hear about the course you said you know writing's going well studying's going well it was very kind of modest way of putting it but are you enjoying it like was it like like how is it how is it being on a creative writing course I'm quite jealous in a way <laughs> um I would say it's totally worth the sacrifice that I made yeah. for for it it is so nice to be 
doing what you love yeah. all the time and forefronting it beyond other things you know like I I get to say hey I'm not doing that job because this comes first or I'm not doing that because this comes first and you know most of the time before I was doing this I was often having to make time to write right whereas now I feel like I'm just making time to do other things rather than writing are you so, a writer now then I guess so. It's on my Instagram profile. I guess so. <laughs> I'm not having that. Coach is not having that. <laughs> yes, I'm a writer now. Yes, yes. Yeah. I mean, I've I've been a writer for a long time, but I yes. think, yes, I would be more comfortable giving myself that title now than I used to be. Can we um, expect to see anything from you published? Mm, that's not, that's a high pressure question, but I'm just yes. wondering because... Um, my friend Caroline's about to publish her poetry yes. book, Cow. Yes. Yeah. I remember you talking to me about that. I don't have anything definitely coming out anytime soon, put it like yes. that. But there are certainly things in progress. Yeah. Irons in the fire. <laughs> could potentially become something. Um, Yes, but you know, I'm quite uh, apparently quite determined. So maybe we'll make this happen. Well, from the sounds <laughs> of it, well, listening to the, the, this conversation, absolutely. I mean, I'm learning all kinds of things about you that I didn't, you know, I didn't know. So it's mm. uh, it's really interesting, <laughs> and it's like I feel so relaxed and kind of warm inside hearing, imagining you there in Norwich. Kind of, it's almost like. I don't I can't think what film it is, but some kind of movie where people are at Oxford or Cambridge and they're just writing away in their room. <laughs> it's the kind of image I have of you at the moment. Yeah. I'm mostly writing in coffee shops. <laughs> mostly writing in coffee shops. Yeah. Cool. No, it's weird, isn't it? So when you started talking to me earlier before we started recording, you were talking about how I look a bit more glowy. You and you're not well. the first person, you're not the first person to say this. I've had this actually from my mum and uh, a friend in New Zealand who've, who've all said, you look very different. And I think when everybody last saw me, well, you guys all saw me in, in Tokyo, I was really uh, suffering, I think. You were not well. Um, yeah, you no. were suffering. Yeah. Yeah. And I think being able to do the thing that you love and really focus on it has such a huge impact on your well-being in other ways I yeah. mean also I you would not believe how little alcohol I drink now I've left Japan <laughs> it's, it's such, such an a, alcoholic place oh it's my such god a boozy culture 20, yeah. 24 7 you're never like more than mm. 100 meters from somewhere you can purchase a whole range of stuff yeah so I mean that probably helps but yeah I think more than anything it's just being able to pursue the things that you you want to do to a level you know amongst people who are as good if not better than you as well um and that that whole feedback process is like everybody is improving and getting better every time they're submitting something so it's really very juicy place to be I think juicy, <laughs> you know love it. <laughs> so Laura where can people find you online do you want to share your Instagram or your blog or something I don't have a blog at the moment. Okay, um, good to know because you're doing because the real thing. <laughs> other things to do. Yes. Um, so my Instagram is Rock and Laura Photo. So rock. that's Rock and mm. as in Rock and Roll. Yes. But Rock and Laura Photo. Laura. That name actually came out of the play on words with Rock and Laura. Yeah, because like your you, name in Japanese. Japanese is yeah. Japanese is 
Rora, right? Or it can yeah, be read yeah. that way. Yeah. Yes. Rora. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Rock and roller, rock and Laura. On Twitter, I am, I think, Black Lily101. And that's Lily with two L's. So yes. if anybody wants a headshot or anything else, www.rockandlaurafoto.com. We'll be sure to link to those in the show notes as well. Rockandlaurafoto.com. Thanks, Laura. So my final question that I ask everybody is there are many ways to lead a life. And what does that mean to you? Mm. I think for me, it's a, all about being able to uh, reiterate on things and noticing, as we've mentioned, noticing the threads that, that run through mm. and being aware of them and following them. Because very often these, at least for me, these things have started early. And where I haven't been observing them, things have gone a bit awry. But where I'm back on that track, things are much better. <laughs> you know, <laughs> much better. Um, much better. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's a case of like seeing what works and changing it if it doesn't, and then try this out and then you know adjust this here and there and there. Sometimes those you come to the end of that thread, Ooh. like with teaching, you know was wonderful for many many years and I was you know fully committed to to being a teacher until I wasn't yeah and then that's 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 fine so sometimes you know so interesting like following the threads and if you don't follow them things go awry I and Mm. on the flip side of that I have to say that when we had that converse that very like laser coaching 20 minute session can't think of anybody else who had such a strong reaction to that where you were like like where where I was like option a the thing you don't doesn't light you up or option b the thing that lights you up your face was like what (laughs) it was magic it was pure magic that and, and and you know and then you get that momentum from obviously then you have to come up into the consensus reality and do the stuff in the real world that needs to be done you made your list etc mm. so but that moment I will never forget it I was so delighted uh to, to I mean I'm, I coach I don't care if those moments do or don't happen but when something like that does happen and it just kind of clicks it just mm. it's very satisfying it's very very satisfying and now seeing you doing your masters in creative writing is just it's such a joy to me it really it's it's so joy it's satisfying but it's also it's magical and it's such a joy and I feel it just it's so nice to see people do this because of course I'm a human being as well who has their golden threads and who things go awry from time to time so part of the reason why I do this is for my own satisfaction as well to Mm. be like yeah all right. Basically, all I want to do at the moment is drink cups of tea and look out the window at the flowers. So sounds fab. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Laura, thank you so much. Thank uh, you. It's been an absolute treasure, an absolute joy. And I'm sure there's loads and loads of great little takeaways that the listeners can take from here. I'm Sarah Faruya, and this is the Legends Podcast. I believe there are many ways to lead a life and everybody has stories. And I hope you enjoyed listening to this terrific story from Laura from Rock and Laura Photo (laughs) thank you bye 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 thank you so much for listening to this latest legend on the Sarah Furuya Legends podcast 
hop over to sarahferui.com where you can find the full complement of uh, Legends interviews and conversations. Also, you can like and subscribe over on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. I absolutely love these interviews and these conversations I have with these people. I don't care about subscribers, if I'm absolutely honest. It just helps to get more people over to listen to these fantastic people. I cannot wait for my next interview. I really hope you can get stuck in and find some juice and some delightful little nugget of knowledge or encouragement from these that will help you to create your story and to take your story forward and to weave and dream up and high dream your own story. Buoyed up by the stories of these people, I would call them ordinary, they're not, but these people, these beautiful legends who I've selected to help you on your way and to help me on my way. So please enjoy, share, subscribe. My Facebook page is Sarah Ferruya Coaching. My Instagram page is at Sarah Ferruya Coaching too. So get into it. Thanks. Bye.